Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, where each week, Dr. Frank Domino, along with his guests, translates today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. Now, broadcasting from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Mass., your host, Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. A patient comes in for a physical and a flu shot and mentions that he's heard about the new blood pressure guidelines and wonders if he needs to be treated. His blood pressure today is 134 over 78. Does this qualify for medication? Hi, I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and joining me today to discuss the new blood pressure guidelines is Alan Ehrlich, associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and executive editor at Dynamed. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks, Frank. I am so glad you brought this forward, this new blood pressure guideline. Can you give us a brief synopsis of what the guideline recommends and how evidence-based it is? So, first of all, this guideline is meant to be an update to JNC7. Now, many of you uh, out there may recall JNC7 was already replaced by JNC8. And they sort of glossed over that, and they're focusing mostly on changes vis-a-vis JNC7. JNC8 was actually somewhat more conservative in some of its approaches, and this is getting a little more aggressive in diagnosis and treatment. So I think the to highlight what I think are the key changes people need to be aware of, the first is that there's a new classification system for hypertension. If the systolic blood pressure is 120 to 129, that's classified as elevated. If it's 130 to 139, that's now called stage 1 hypertension. And if it's 140 or over, it's called stage 2 hypertension. For diastolic, stage 1 hypertension would qualify between 80 and 89, and uh, stage 2 hypertension is a diastolic reading greater than 90. So they've added this stage 1 and stage 2, along with a classification of elevated. And as before, you're in the classification if either the diastolic or the systolic measurement gets you into it. So it's not you pick the lower, you pick the higher one. So that's the first change is that there's a new classification. I'm curious. So we have elevated stage one and stage two. Stage two seems like our our former uh, cutoff for initiating treatment. Um, What do we do for patients with elevated and stage one hypertension? So at first glance, it sounds like stage one hypertension is going to be a change. Elevated is really no change. You know, you give them lifestyle advice that anybody should be doing, even if their blood pressure is normal. We talk to people about exercise, limiting their alcohol intake, things like that. But for stage one, it's now recommended that they be started on medication if they meet one of the following criteria. Either they have known coronary vascular disease, or they have a 10-year predicted risk of 10% uh, or higher of developing cardiovascular disease using the pooled cohort equations, or you could use a Framingham calculator or something like that. So previously, people who had known uh, heart disease or other uh, similar types of vascular disease were often advised to have treatment for blood pressure at lower thresholds. So this is more formalizing that. But Now you have a group of people who don't have any increased risk and by comorbidities, 
and let's say their 10-year risk is less than 10%, and now they're still being called stage one hypertension, even though medicine isn't being recommended for them, lifestyle changes only is the uh, suggested treatment. So that's really important. I think that was somewhat missed in, in all the media blitz on this is that stage one hypertension is a diagnosis we give patients, but unless their 10-year risk is over 10% or they have known heart disease, the management is the same as elevated. It's aggressive lifestyle change, exercise, et cetera. That's right. Wonderful. That, that, that actually makes me feel better. Now, one of the big things this guideline recommends is an approach to taking blood pressure. Can you speak to that? So this isn't uh, a new recommendation from them, but what I think has happened is now that they have this new classification system where, you know, as you said, the headline was, okay, we're going to start treating people with a blood pressure of 130 over 80, there's been a lot more attention given to, well, okay, what exactly do we mean by a blood pressure of 130 over 80? And so there's a couple things about that. First of all, the, the standard advice for how you take blood pressure for, and this is how it's done in all the major trials, is that patients take it into a room, they're allowed to sit quietly for five to 10 minutes, they, somebody comes, they take their blood pressure with the right size cuff, with their arm at the same level as their heart, and nobody talks while they're taking the blood pressure, all this kind of stuff, and you're using those readings. And in reality, in, in my office and many other offices, the blood pressure is a rushed thing. The medical assistant's often walking the patient in, sitting them down. They want to get their stuff in because they got to get to the next patient. I come in. I look at the numbers they've given. Unless it's really off, I just often accept that and move on. And so I think a lot more attention needs to be paid to making sure we're doing blood pressure right because otherwise, if we have artificially high readings that don't reflect the true blood pressure, and we start treating on that basis more aggressively, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to be uh, you know, having syncopal episodes from over-aggressive antihypertensive medication. I think that's a really important point, and I think that that's easily missed in, in um, how, we, how we engage patients, is that incumbent upon us is not to prescribe more, but incumbent upon us is to first make the proper diagnosis, and that requires taking the blood pressure in a uniform manner. Just as you say, in my office, the patient is not sitting in a chair with their back supported and their feet on the ground. They're rather dangling in space on my exam table. They're using the old standard mercury cuff, not an automated cuff, and it's, it's done without five minutes of rest. So we need to make a change before we go about asking our patients to make a change. Yeah, there's some other things about this as well. You brought up the issue of the manual cuff versus the automated cuff. And it's worth noting that one of the drivers for the new guidelines is the SPRINT trial that was uh, <clears throat> published recently. In the SPRINT trial, all the blood pressure readings were by automated cuffs. And there's data that shows they tend to read 10 or 20 points lower than a uh, mercury, a standard blood pressure cuff. If that's the case, and you're basing your treatment decisions on in-office mercury blood pressure devices, then you, again, you're going to be overly aggressive in the, the treatment of patients with what appears to be high blood pressure. One of the things that's suggested is for patients who have what I'd call more borderline blood pressure, let's say 130 up to 150 or 160, to strongly consider 
ambulatory blood pressure monitoring to get a better sense of how is their blood pressure being managed. Or alternatively, the patient can get a home blood pressure cuff, make sure it's calibrated, and you can use those readings to help guide management. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Alan, because uh, I believe a year ago, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force said use home ambulatory blood pressure monitoring before making the diagnosis of hypertension. And I think uh, that's a really strong point. We, we need to get our patients more empowered, um, both with the diagnosis and the lifestyle management of this condition. It seems that one of the big takeaways here is that we treat greater than 140 and greater than 90, and we worry about treatment in high-risk patients when it's between 130 and 140 and 80 and 90, and we get much better at making the appropriate diagnosis. I think all those things are exactly right, Frank. I want to mention a few other things. The first is this stage one hypertension really replaces what was something I was never a big fan of, which was prehypertension. So prehypertension is now gone. Okay, I thought that was always a, a little bit of a questionable uh, nomenclature. The second thing is, around the same time that these guidelines were published, there was also a systematic review published in JAM Internal Medicine in November. Uh, and what they looked at was, for multiple outcomes, what are the benefits when you treat if the systolic uh, pressure is less than 140? or at various gradations over 140. And what they found was there's no benefit to treating at less than 140. And this systematic review included the SPRINT trial, and the authors discussed, well, is their data from the systematic review in conflict with the SPRINT trial? And they again pointed to the differences in blood pressure measurement as a potential factor. So there's a lot of stuff out there there's going to be a lot more discussion, and uh, I think there's still a lot of controversy around these new recommendations and how they get implemented, but it's uh, certainly food for thought. That systematic review perfectly puts in perspective how we should be applying this guideline. Somewhat caution until you reach that threshold where we have actual data that demonstrates beneficial outcomes. Alan, thanks so much for bringing this forward. This is hugely important and I hope our listeners appreciate all the hard work you put into making this so succinct and clear. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. With systolic blood pressure between 130 and 139 or diastolic between 80 and 89, indications for medication include a known history of cardiovascular disease or a 10-year risk of a cardiovascular event of 10% or more. Join us next time when we talk about management of resistant C. difficile infection in the outpatient setting. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. For more information about the article referenced in today's episode, look under the Resources section of the episode landing page. Need help reaching your CME credit goal this year? If so, Please browse the more than 300 free CME accredited activities now available on primed.com. Thank you again for listening.